Welcome to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church in Donaldson, Arkansas. This is Elder Dan Sammons preaching in our regular Sunday morning service. If you have your Bibles with you today, open up to uh, John chapter 8. I've had a topic that's been on my mind for a while, and uh, I feel like I have to keep preaching on it till it's not on my mind anymore, I guess. And that's the topic of lies and truth. We are in a society right now that is promoting lies that are almost unprecedented in American society anyway. I know the Bible says that there's nothing new under the sun, so I'm sure if you went back through history and had access to everything that's ever been taught, you'd find some examples of just such craziness being taught in our world. And any of us could probably sit down and write out a half dozen lies that are promoted in the public square today. Uh, that are problematic and unpleasant and maybe totally unexpected. You know, if you'd asked us 10 or 15 years ago if we'd been confronting any of these issues, you'd probably think, I can't even see that that would ever be a problem. And it's uh, very much a problem in our time today. But I want to talk a little bit about the nature of lies and make sure that we understand the principles upon which lies are based and a little bit about God's attitude toward lies We may live in a place that's got so many lies going around that we may become uh, more comfortable with the idea that maybe God's not that perplexed by lying. You know, there's a lot of it going on, and uh, maybe it's not as troubling to God as the Bible declares that it is. So we want to look at what the Bible says about that. We'll look at a couple of examples of lies that existed among God's people. So it's a very dangerous thing to think, well, I'm a Christian now. I don't ever deal in the domain of lying. The Bible gives us examples of Christian people who were in the domain of lying and some of the consequences that came into their lives as a result of it. And then I kind of want to turn our attention after that to the topic of how this relates to parenting and mothering in particular. But let's start by building this foundation. I'm in John chapter 8, starting at about verse 43. This is Jesus in his public ministry. Why do ye not understand my speech? Even because ye cannot hear my word. Now the people he's addressing here are people the Lord very clearly says, you can't even hear what I'm saying. He's not saying you don't have the physical capacity of hearing. I'm sure they understood the sentence. They could probably write it down on a chalkboard and say, this is what Jesus just said. I hear it in that sense. He's talking about hearing with the spiritual ear. He's talking about having the faith to receive what Jesus said and to affirm that is the truth. That is the hearing that Jesus Christ has in mind. What is taught here is something that is offensive among many Christians today. There are those who simply cannot hear the truth. It is not simply if you'll just put the truth in front of people, anyone can hear it. Jesus Christ here plainly is looking at some people and saying, you cannot hear it. That is one of the precepts that underscores the fact that the salvation of God's people is in God's hands. If God doesn't open your ears, doesn't give you the ears to hear, the eyes to see, a new heart to receive such things, you will not receive these things. And rather than being something that is offensive to Christian people, it ought to be something we take great comfort in. If you're someone today who has said, well, I believe that everyone can hear, and I know I heard some things about Jesus one time, and I believed it, and that was very meaningful to me, I don't doubt that experience at all. At all. And I'm not trying to say, well, if you didn't understand this truth, then you're not a Christian. 
or you're not one of God's children. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is that you may have a misunderstanding about how you got faith in the first place. Because all men have not faith. 2 Thessalonians 3, 2. That's just a fundamental precept of the Bible. So if you're sitting there today and you say, well, I have faith. I believe what Jesus said. I'm not sure I believe this election stuff that you're preaching and predestination and those sort of doctrines. Well, I don't doubt that you have faith. You see, you can have something and not know how you got it, right? You might have a misunderstanding about how you got it. But if you have faith today, you hear about this Jesus who died for the sins of his people, you see yourself as a sinner, you're not one of these people then who cannot hear his words. In fact, you're one who can hear his words, which proves that you're one of his sheep, and you've already been touched by his grace. Because the gospel reveals the righteousness of Christ from faith to faith. You see, it doesn't reveal the righteousness of Christ from faith to no faith. And then in a given enough time, it produces some faith so that you will believe. It reveals the righteousness of Christ to faith. People who have faith, the born again, can receive it. These people are not of that sort. So we learn a very important principle there as it relates to the sovereignty of God in salvation. And Jesus goes on to say of these people, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar, and the father of it. The devil is the father of lies. It comes right out of his playbook. Any lie that exists in this world ultimately can be traced back to Satan, the father of lies. This evil notion of lying is something that is extremely hated by God. And we'll see that in just a minute. He goes on to say to these people, And because I tell you the truth, ye believe me not. See, there's people in the world who are so opposed to the truth, who cannot hear the teachings of Christ, they're going to hate you for it, for standing in the truth. I'm very thankful that the Bible teaches this because you might be surprised to hear that, well, I'm telling people the truth and they hate me. That just doesn't seem right. Everybody ought to love me because I'm trying to tell them the truth. It doesn't work that way. And the Bible is very uh, straightforward with you in admitting this fact. So it's good that we know it. If we're going to represent the truth, we're going to face some opposition in the world, particularly of those who cannot hear my word. Now, that's not the only realm. You'll find that people who can hear the word are going to oppose the truth sometimes. Have you ever done that? Have you ever been a child of God? Have you ever been a converted person and you hear something in, uh, preached in the word of God and you think, well, I just don't, I'm not sure I like that. You see, even God's people can oppose the truth. Even those who can hear the Word can oppose the truth. And that's why this also applies to us. We need to know something about the importance of aligning ourselves with the truth. He goes on to say, And because I tell you the truth, ye believe me not, which of you convinceth me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do you not believe me? In other words, can any of you prove me wrong? This is what Jesus is saying. You're going to prove that I'm a sinner here, what I'm telling you? And if I say the truth, why do you not believe me? You'll experience this if you represent the truth in this world. You're going to find some opposition to it. Isn't that inevitable? In a wicked world, if you represent the truth, you're going to face opposition to it, right? In a world where it's raining, if you stand outside, you're going to get wet. I mean, that's not hard to understand. If the world is raining down wickedness the way it evidently is, you go out and stand in the truth, you're going to get wet with the contempt of wicked people being heaped upon you. So 
Know it and be prepared for it. But he goes on to say this, He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. Now the main thing I wanted to grab out of that text is that the devil is the father of lies. Lies are coming from evil. It's not a good thing. And uh, I don't think that's controversial. But where it gets a little bit difficult, in a world where Jesus Christ affirmed that many false prophets are gone in the world, many people are teaching lies in this world, and that's, that's in the realm of Christianity, that's in the realm of other religions, that's in the realm of politics, it's in the realm of all sorts of social things that you would find, your businesses, your corporations. There's all sorts of declarations of falsehood going on out there, and Jesus Christ warned us about that. But here's the dangerous thing. We might all affirm that. We could probably sit down over lunch and come up with, oh, here's two dozen things that we think are just lies out there in the public square. We're against it, and we think it's totally wrong. But the trouble comes into our lives in how it gets presented to us. Look at 2 Corinthians 11. And we're going to do some flipping around here. I've got a bunch of texts I want to look at today. Let me say this as an editorial commentary. For those of you who don't bring Bibles to church, I would recommend you bring one or leave one at church. Some of you leave Bibles at church. And some people find it hard to listen and to follow along. And they find it difficult to find things in the Scriptures to study. But I would suggest to you this. There is something more you get out of preaching if you put your eyes on the text that is being preached from. Now you can receive preaching and not have your Bible and listen to it and profit from it. I'm not saying that, right? You definitely can, and I thank all of you for your attention that you bring to church. But if you're capable, it's also helpful to turn in the Bible and find these passages and look at them. And the other thing I would recommend is that if you're looking for some things to study and to read over the course of a week, write down the passages that were preached from. And just, you might want to take one of those and say, you know what, I want to understand what is said here in context. So maybe Brother Dan took about four verses in the middle of this chapter. I'll start and read the entire chapter. And maybe read a few verses after that so you can understand what's on either side of it. That will be tremendously valuable to your progress as a disciple and in understanding the truths that are taught in this church if you will do that. There's a lot more. Those of you who are committed to attending church every Sunday, you're getting 52 lessons a year. Lord willing, if we're able to have church every week, there's 52 lessons a year, and you've committed this time, you can benefit if you press into it a little bit more. There's more you can get. I can tell you that there's scriptures. I can remember my my mother. This Mother's Day, I'm going to talk about my mother a little bit. My mother made me familiar with the Bible. And I can remember her telling me, well, this verse teaches this or whatever. And as a child, I could remember that. And I could remember things that were said in those verses. But I didn't know where they resided in the Bible. So I got some benefit out of it. I would remember things like, whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Now, that's not hard to understand. And your life will bear it out if your life is anything like mine. It's absolutely true, but as I got older, I started realizing, well, it would be helpful if I knew where to find those things. And so by hearing it and then saying, okay, where is that? And then you start underlining it, and you have some verses that you know, and you start to understand, well, that's here and that's there, and you start to understand these things a little bit better. I think it becomes more personal when you have personally put your eyes on the text and looked at it. 
there's like an extra degree of emphasis that it takes on in your mind when you do that. So that's my quick sales pitch for looking things up in the Bible. There's two things you can do. You can look it up as we preach and you can go back and as the Bereans did, search the scriptures daily to see if these things are so. You see, you can sit in any assembly and have a preacher tell you a bunch of stuff and you can just believe whatever the preacher said. But if you take the time, as the Bereans did, to search those things and look at it yourself, you'll be more convinced that these things are so to the extent that you do that. So let me encourage you in that regard. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We find this. And he's talking about false teachings in the church. Verse 13, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. The apostles have all passed away. There should be no one on this planet at this time saying, I am an apostle. But these people are transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Now, we previously said that he is the father of lies. That kind of gives you the impression, well, he's a liar. We can identify a lie when one is put before us. The trouble comes in that Satan transforms himself into an angel of light. That means in most instances when you are deceived by a lie, you're going to be convinced that that lie is something good, not something evil. We all maintain a carnal mind, though we have the mind of Christ through regeneration. We still struggle with the old man, and that old man is inclined to believe the lies. And he likes having some ways that the lies can be explained so that they're actually something good rather than something evil. And society will provide ways to justify those lies, but this is just something we're to be mindful of. Look, the lies that you're most susceptible to are the ones that you're apt to think are good, not the ones that you say, well, that's evidently evil. And everyone has some dimension of lies in their life that they are apt to accept just because they appeal to the carnal man and make it good rather than evil. So that's part of the deception, right? Lies wouldn't be nearly so effective if they weren't so appealing. And we all maintain a carnal mind that allows an avenue for Satan to exploit and to convince you that something is good when it's actually evil. I suspect if you went back over your own life, you would find examples of things I did, and at the time I thought, you know, this is good, this is okay, this is a good thing to do. And you had some convoluted carnal reasoning as to why that was good. And in hindsight, you look back and say, it was not good. It was a lie. And I believed it. I accepted that lie. We could probably spend months sharing our war stories in that, but we ought to learn from it. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their work. So, if the devil transforms himself as an angel of light, you shouldn't be surprised when men employ this same technique. This is talking specifically about people in the context of Christian ministry leading people astray. But I believe the principle is in effect as well just in the secular people in our society who can try to convince you to do other things. They are transforming themselves into an angel of light in the sense that they're trying to tell you, I am representing what is good. And if you don't follow this thing that I'm promoting, you are not good. In fact, you're evil if you oppose it. So that's the thing that makes it so dangerous for us. Now let's look a little bit more at the principle of lies and what God's attitude is towards it. In Proverbs chapter 6, we find this testimony, and it's a common scripture. 
Chapter 6 and verse 16, These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination to Him. Okay, these are things God hates. You hear, oftentimes here, you know, God is love, and that is certainly true. But in an evil world with a holy God that loves, if there is evil in this world, can a holy God love evil? He cannot love evil and be holy. Because it is unholy to be a lover of evil. So the fact that evil exists tells us that even a God who declares of himself that God is love, he must hate some things in a world that is evil. And he hates evil. And they are an abomination to him. Now look what he says here, verse 17. A proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. Verse 18. And heart that deviseth wicked imaginations... Feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among brethren. So you've got this list of things, and lies come out very prominent in this list of things that God hates. Lying tongue, false witnessing, and speaking lies. This is all in there. And I think this should stick in our minds as something that reminds us of just how serious God regards the matter of lying. If you think back in your own life, you've probably had times when someone bore false witness of you. I use this example because we can be kind of thin-skinned and we have a certain attitude of what we are and how people should perceive us. And I think that's normal and natural. And yet, if someone has decided, I want to hurt you, I'm going to tell people some lie about you, bear false witness against you, it's generally one of the most hurtful things that can come back that you could find out about, especially if they thought that person was a friend before. But even if that person is not a friend, and you find out there's this person out there that is spreading falsehoods about me, it's just totally not true. That is really, really upsetting. It's difficult to combat that sort of thing because as people who are inclined to wickedness, we tend to share salacious negative feedback about other people more liberally than we ought. And so the lie gets around the world before you've even got a chance to start to say, look, that's not true and here's the reasons why. And honestly, among wicked people with carnal hearts, the lie is way more appealing. It's much more interesting to listen to than to hear the correction. Now, if you don't believe that, this is the old journalism principle that says if it bleeds, it leads. You see, a salacious story is way more interesting and appeals to a lot more eyeballs than some simple truth. And usually, when the correction comes, if they have slandered someone in a newspaper on the front page, when the correction comes, it's in the back of the section below the fold. It's on the last page. Oh, by the way, on, you know... March the 4th, we said this about so-and-so, and it was wrong. Nobody really wants to hear that part of it, but they want to hear the salacious details. And this is part of why lying is so offensive. Maybe the offense that you felt in instances like that might give you some little window into what God's attitude is towards lying. You hate it, and you've probably been a liar through the course of your life at times. You've told some untruths. You're not perfect and holy and righteous in the way that God is. And you're horribly offended when someone has lied against you. How much more would God, who is perfect and holy, 
be offended by the notion of lying. So it's a very serious matter with God and one that mankind has become far too casual and accepting of for the most part. Let's look at some examples. I told you I was going to give you an example of Christian people telling lies. And this is really to convince you that we're not immune to it. You can be a good, solid Christian person, church member, dedicated, but you can still be deceived about things. And so we we must always kind of step back from this and say, am I really being honest with myself? Am I really, is my life in accordance with what I find the Word of God teaching? Look at Acts chapter 5. This is a famous example. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. So these are Christian people. These are people who are in the church. They're going to sell a property, and they're going to keep back a little bit of it, but they're going to give the rest of it to the church. Now, I'm going to say this. I don't think there's anything wrong with doing that. It's sort of the tragedy of this story is that I don't think there's anything wrong with what they do. You're to be a cheerful giver. And if they wanted to sell something and give half of it to the church, I think they're totally within their Christian liberty to do that. There's nothing wrong with doing that. But they somehow were convinced that, well, we need to get more uh, street cred among the Christians if we said we sold it and we gave it all to the church, right? There's not anything wrong with holding half of it back. It was their property. They didn't have to give it anyway, right? If they wanted to give half, they should have gave half, and that would have been the thing. By the way, you don't really have to tell anybody the mechanics of your giving. The Bible speaks about giving with simplicity. You know, don't make it too complicated. Well, I'm going to sell this property, and then I'm going to pay the taxes on it. And then if I get this amount back, you know, and it's on a Thursday, and, you know, it's not raining, I'm going to give 12% to the church. And No, no, no. If you have an offering to give to the church, just bring it and give it to the church, and you don't have to tell anybody anything about it, and that's between you and the Lord. The problem is they were concerned about the public testimony related to their giving, and they wanted to take credit for a narrative here. They're they're spinning up a narrative that casts this in a different light that makes them look better. That's how I interpret it anyway. Verse 3, But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. I think he probably did think he was lying to men and he was going to get away with it. And Peter's point was, no, you've really lied to God in this. It's clear that this was a thought that he had come up with in his own mind. And Peter points out it was in your power to do with these things what you wanted to do. You know, why did you have to put this narrative over the top of it that sort of made you seem more holy or whatever, right? I want everybody to think I gave all of it instead of part of it. Well, maybe they won't think as much of me. If I only gave half of it, maybe that would be something that 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 wouldn't uh, that story doesn't spin as well among God's people. Whatever his motivation was, he came up with this lie. Verse five, and Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost and great fear came on all them that heard these things. Well, the Bible says that God regards these things as an abomination. 
And I submit in our society, if God was handling every instance like this, we'd have a population problem in this country. Because there's lies being told all over the place. But this is an example in the Bible of just how seriously God regards the matter. And it's an occasion for us to step back and try to reassess the truth that we're standing in and avoid any lies that may be out there. And the young men arose, wound him up, and carried him out and buried him. And it was about the space of three hours after when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. And Peter answered unto her, Tell me whether ye sold the land for so much. And she said, Yea, for so much. Then Peter said unto her, How is it that ye have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at the door, and shall carry thee out. Then fell she down straightway at his feet, and yielding up the ghost... And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her forth, and buried her by her husband. And great fear came upon all the church, and upon as many as heard these things. Now, this is an extremely severe punishment. And I'm telling you right now, I'd be dirt snorkeling right now if God had applied that to my life. Guaranteed. I suspect many of you would be a moldering in the grave right there next to me. So... I'm thankful that God has been merciful to me in the midst of some of the tall tales that I've told over the course of my life. But this is in the early church, and there were certain things being applied here that were intended to be a lesson to the church as it was growing out there. This is a very severe matter. You know, the church is brokering in the truth. So this notion of playing around with lies is a very serious matter. If you're standing up, you're saying, as Paul did, the church is the pillar and ground of truth. And then you're going to be a minister or a church member who's going to also be dealing with a whole lot of errors and lies. That starts to undermine the claim that the church is the pillar and ground of truth. So it's important that we be oriented around the truth and avoid the crass errors of Ananias and Sapphira. I think they got too wound up in what other people thought about their service. You know, if they had simply thought, here's some money we want to give to the Lord. We're going to give half to the Lord. They hadn't told anybody anything about how much. They just said, here's the money. We want to give this to the church. Praise God. We're thankful for it. I don't think there would have been any problem. Would God have known what they gave? Yep. If they gave it cheerfully, I'm sure He would have been pleased with it. There was no demand that they sell and give anything to the church. So they could have done this, done it cheerfully, but it was the fact that they were so concerned about what everybody else was going to think about it. That was their first error. And then they thought, well... We could sweeten the pot a little bit if we told the story a little bit different. Then we would look a little bit better. So make your giving be between you and the Lord and don't give any concern. I'd say the greatest display of your faith in the matter of giving is to do it largely in secret. Give what you give. Pray to the Lord. If there's something you feel like you need to give, just give it. And that's just all there is to it. You don't have to explain to anybody what you did. We're not going to have an accounting firm come in and and double-check the figures and and all sorts of things. That's between you and the Lord. The Lord knows. And if you think that other people have to know and they have to understand this story about it, you may be giving some indication that there may be more in this matter of giving to you than just serving the Lord. You might be thinking, "I, I want to get a little bit of more credibility with people who are around me. So... Give without dissimulation and uh, make it simple and honest and with a cheerful heart. So that's another window into how God regards the matter of lies. 
we're running up on time here, so I won't go into this example, but I'll mention it to you. And that's the idea of Peter being confronted by Christ. You know, the Lord tells Peter that I'm going to be crucified, basically. They're going to come and get me. And I'm going to be dead sooner rather than later. And Peter's response to this was, that is never going to happen. We're not going to desert you. We're not going to let this happen. We're going to be here. We're going to fight. We're not going to let them take you. And I honestly believe that in that moment, Peter believed that what he was saying was that, I think that was his honest testimony. He was wrong about it. You can be sincere in some profession and be sincerely wrong. And the reason Peter was sincerely wrong is because the Lord Jesus Christ is standing right in front of him telling him this is going to happen. And Peter's saying on the basis of how good he thinks he is, Peter's saying, no, you're wrong about that, Jesus. Well, when you have to start with you're wrong about that, Jesus, in your response, you're the one that's wrong about it. He's opposing what Jesus Christ just told him is going to happen. And he's doing it on the basis of, well, I think I'm better than that, you see. Uh, it's a foolish way to be, but I have a lot of sympathy for Peter's answer because I think I understand the circumstances and why I might want to have said the same thing. You know, I, Peter loved the Lord. If there's someone you know and you love in this church and someone said, they're going to come take that person away. And you might be ready to rise up and say, I'm not going to let that happen. And then when it actually comes to pass, you might be thinking, "Ooh, this is serious deal here. I don't want to get mixed up in that. Right. So I kind of understand Peter. I think a lot of Christians relate to Peter in that respect. But later in Matthew chapter 26, we find out that Peter betrayed the Lord even as um, the Lord said he would. And he lied in that. You know, they're like, didn't we see you with the Lord? Wasn't me. Not me. So. If zealous Peter, who was an apostle and a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, saw his miraculous ministry firsthand, if he can get wrapped up in the notion of lies and get in trouble over that, we should all recognize that we're bound to get wrapped up in it as well. So it's a cautionary tale for us. Now, God hates many of the lies that are in the public square today. And I want to confirm one of them and talk a little bit about this matter and then maybe talk a little bit about the importance of instruction for the mothers that are here. Matthew chapter 19, we see the Lord Jesus Christ responding to a question about divorce. Chapter 19 and verse 3 says, The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Now this is a group of people who are not really asking the Lord in sincerity, These are people tempting him, which means we're going to try to ask you some tough questions that will trip you up and prove you to be a false teacher or prove that you're contradicting yourself. By the way, I would call this a Bible study. Jesus Christ is going to answer them with something from the Scriptures, and you have people coming up and asking questions of it. And I'll just make this statement. I think it's very plain You cannot read the New Testament and come away with the idea that Christian people were not entertaining questions from others about the truth and answering them in a form that I'm very comfortable calling Bible study. 
And our people have been opposed, some of them have been opposed to this idea of having a Bible study. But Jesus Christ is going to point them to the truths of Genesis chapter 3. And these people are asking questions. And by the way, this is not in a Sunday setting here. This is happening all throughout the apostolic ministry and all throughout Jesus Christ's ministry. It was almost a nonstop Q&A with people. And to the extent that those answers continuously point you back to the Scriptures, this is a method of studying the Bible. It is the primitive method of studying the Bible. So if you want to raise up, I am a primitive Baptist, you're going to have to take what they primitively did in the first century. And that involves questions and answers. And I'd say to any of you, whether it's on our Facebook page or in private correspondence with me or over lunch or in any other time, if you have questions about things and you want to know something about the Scriptures, feel free to ask. Bible study is open at all hours as far as I'm concerned in this assembly. And if I'm giving you answers and they don't have anything to do with the Scripture, then that's not a good thing, right? Now, if you're asking me questions about how to, you know, fix the transmission on your car, I may not have a good verse at hand that can specifically fix that issue. Although I bet I can find some that will deal with what's going to happen when you, uh, you know, twist your hand in there trying to fix the thing. So it's important. One of the things that's modeled in this, by the way, is that there's a question and Jesus Christ goes to, what does the Word of God say? And He goes all the way back to Genesis, right? It's not like, oh, Genesis is just fables. We can't really do that. No, it's the seedbed of doctrine in the Bible. He takes them right there. So they're tempting Him in this Q&A. And He answered and said unto them, Have you not read? Wait a minute. Jesus has opened a Bible study here. And we shouldn't be afraid of it. That He which made them at the beginning made them male and female. That is a very simple statement. It is not difficult to understand. And as little as five years ago, there was literally no one questioning that this was the division of humanity. It's male and female. And this now is very much called into question. In fact, to just simply read this and affirm that it's male and female among humanity is regarded as hate speech in some domains today. But I'm telling you, this is right embedded in the core truths of the Christian faith. This truth was so universally accepted just a few years ago that even people who weren't Christians weren't even really questioning it, not in any public way. They might have been in some private quarters But the idea of questioning it was so utterly preposterous that they wouldn't even bring it out in the streets. But there is a way in which a veil has been removed from evil in the United States to such a way that people are emboldened now to teach things that would have been regarded as preposterous just a few years ago. And they're teaching it boldly and teaching it in a way that says, if you oppose it, you're the one that's evil. But this is very plainly taught in the Word of God. And as you encounter any who may oppose this, I think you just have to recognize this is one of those truths that you just have to lay it out there. At the beginning, God made them male and female. And you just have to let that hit like a ton of bricks. There it is. That's what Jesus Christ taught. I am a Christian. This is not a matter of debate. This is the teaching of the Christian faith. And it's a target now for secular society. 
One of the things this does, however, is in the common teaching, it really extends more to the idea that men and women, there's essentially no difference between them. Men and women are the same. The Bible does not teach that. Men and women are different. We should be thankful that they're different. It doesn't mean men are morally better than women or anything like that. It just means they are different. They are complementary one to another. This is very much opposed in society today, and we are convincing men that they can be women and women that they can be men. And it's not possible. It's just a lie. It's an absolute lie. God made them male and female. One of the things that's happening is as men begin to perform as women in some circumstances, they are robbing women of things that should be their just desert. We see that happening all the time, and it's going to happen more and more. And it's simply because we are, as a society, beginning to embrace the lie that there's no real difference between men and women, and you can move around between however you want to, and deny the truth that men and women are complementary, and this is how God made these things. Women have an incredibly important role in society. The hand that rocks the cradle is, is how it's often been referred to, but just an incredibly important role in society. And as we begin to blur the lines between men and women, this situation gets a little out of round and it starts to cause problems. And maybe we're susceptible to receiving this lie. We don't need to rob men and women of their uniqueness, their God-given uniqueness. There are things that my wife can and does do that she's way better at than I am. And the converse is also true. And when those things come together in the context of a family, it helps a family run the way it ought to run. Now, if you start playing with that model too much, you start to introduce all sorts of problems. And I'm just going to tell you flat out that the Lord Jesus Christ taught it's male and female. And that's what it is. He goes on to say, he said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. So there is a complementary nature, even in the domain of the sexual union between man and woman. This further emphasizes the reality that they've been created in this way. And by the way, there's a lot in this, and I don't want to get bogged down in it, but I will say this. This establishes the sole proper domain for human sexual activity in the world. It's much narrower than what even a lot of Christian people want to say. I see Christian people getting really bent out of shape about things like homosexuality. Well, that's just totally outrageous. That's what they did back in Sodom and Gomorrah. It's outrageous. Yet meanwhile, many Christian people have a sexual ethic that's just like, well, I mean, this whole thing about being married and that's the only place you can do that. They're wide open about that. This is very common among Christians. They think that part over there is not okay. But this part about just out there fornicating with whoever you want to without being married, now that's become acceptable now. I mean, doesn't everybody do that? I mean, that's just the way it is. We're, we're more comfortable with that because it doesn't seem as gross to us. But what Jesus defines here is way more narrow than just heterosexual sex. 
He's talking about a marriage between a man and a woman, and that is the only domain wherein this union is to take place. That puts a lot of people out of order. But that's what it is. It's regarded as backward and puritanical and ridiculous and, you know, that's just so yesterday, man. Well, you can believe that lie if you want to and go out and have open relationships with people if you want to, but it's going to cause problems. Whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap, and it's manifest in our society everywhere. So, better to conform ourselves to this model and benefit from it. That's a very important teaching. So, let me go on to say this. These sorts of teachings, and we talk about the role of mother, mothers and parents really in general, but if we look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, one of the unique aspects of being a mother is the amount of access you have to your children. And not only the amount of access, but the amount of influence you have on your children. In my observation, there's a season in a child's life where there's just this unique bond between mother and child. It's just naturally that way. It kind of has to be that way. And I want to make everyone aware that in that season, you have the ability to plant seeds in that child's heart with respect to the Word of God. They are listening to you in a way that when they turn 14 or 15 or 16, they're not going to be listening so much anymore. It's a unique season that you have, and we're taught to do it. It's not just women, but women have the uniqueness of that in a way that men do not, particularly when the children are young. We see here back, way back in Deuteronomy, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thine soul, with all thy might. And these words which I command me this day shall be in thine heart. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. I think the old Baptists are real good about saying, the Lord God comes to people immediately and regenerates them and gives them eternal life and He writes their laws on their heart. That's true. We should affirm that. It is absolutely true. Where we have dropped the ball in many occasions is on the next verse. And... There's a law written on their hearts. God did that. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. Those of you who are mothers and grandmothers and you have opportunity with young children you're sitting down with, you have a unique opportunity to plant the Word of God and teach it to your children. And I'm telling you, that is a tremendous blessing. It may be the salvation of the Lord's church in America if we'll step up to that challenge. I heard it said at the meeting I was at this uh, just a couple days ago that old Baptists have kind of thumbed their lapels over, well, we don't have a Sunday school. We're proud of ourselves because all the other churches, they got a Sunday school, and we don't have a Sunday school. We teach the Bible to our children in our homes. And then that elder said, and that was a lie. He's talking about a period in time. I pray it's not today. He's talking about a period in time among the old Baptists where we were so proud of not having a Sunday school, which we thought was out of order, and yet we're claiming we teach the Bible to our children in our homes and we don't do it. That's shameful. But that is the proper model, and we can correct that. We have an opportunity to do it. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. And look at how the, it's done. And shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be frontlets between thine eyes.'" 
And thou shalt write them upon the post of thy house and on thy gates, and it shall be when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee unto the land which he swore unto the fathers of Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob, to give thee great and goodly cities which thou buildest not. The interesting thing about this is it's saying you need to be teaching your kids these things pretty much all the time. It's like all these different circumstances. It's just you need to weave it into the warp and woof of your day. It's not necessarily we've got to have a Bible class at 10 o'clock every morning. It's more like, no, we're getting the milk out of the refrigerator and we're talking about Bible things while we're doing that, right? Some trial going on in your life and you think, this is really bad. What are we going to do? And you say, the Lord shall never leave us nor forsake us. As bad as it may seem, hey, we, the Lord's not going to leave us or forsake us. Right? So you kind of work these things into your life. But there's the warning part of it. It's talking about when they get into uh, the goodly cities which thou buildest not, and houses full of all good things which thou fillest not, and wells dig which thou diggest not, and vineyards and olive trees which thou plantedest not, when thou shalt have eaten and be full, then beware lest thou forget the Lord which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. You see that? There is an affluence that was coming for them. And the warning here is you need to teach your children this because they can become affluent to such a degree and have so many regular blessings of the physical world that they totally forget about God. And I think that's the state that America is in in many respects. We find all too often, this is why Brother Sonny preached on the church at Laodicea. I mean, he's really making the case that we're too comfortable. We're too comfortable to recognize how in need we are of the Word of God. So take advantage of this. Teach them early and be aware of this. We'll close on this. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 13, Paul speaking to Timothy, But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. That's what we're talking about, is it not? In our society today, evil men and seducers deceiving people to believe a whole bunch of lies out in our society today. And his solution here is, But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. He's talking to Timothy and he's saying, How do you combat this whole issue of you got wicked men and seducers, evil men and seducers, they're just going to be telling lies. You're going to be around it. Your flock is going to be around it. The children are going to be around it. How do you get around this issue? You're going to have to continue in the things that you were taught. And he points out you were taught as a child these things. Now, where do we find that out? Flip back a page. Chapter 1. And he talks about calling to remembrance in verse 5. When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that in thee also. So you have an example here where Timothy was taught by his mother and his grandmother. There's no indication in the Bible that Timothy's father was a believer, so far as I can tell. He seems like he's a Gentile. He may have been a believer. He may have been converted late in life. I just don't see this in the Bible. It seems more like dad was not that involved or he was not that interested in these things. And that situation comes up too. But nevertheless, the mother, his mother and grandmother 
took the time to teach Timothy when he was little. That unique season that you have as a mother is one that we should take advantage of. I know that in, in uh, things I've had at work where they're talking about saving for retirement, they talk about how the very first dollar you put in is the one that earns you the most money over time. And if you wait really late in life before you start saving money, you don't get the benefits of compound interest over the course of your working life. When you come to the end of it, you're like, wow, I'm really struggling to be able to retire now. I don't have enough money there. Well, that first dollar you put in pays the biggest dividends. And this is likewise true in the matter of teaching children the Word of God. The mother's position is unique in that. Mother and father both should be teaching their children, but mother has a unique season. And the society may be trying to rob us of the distinctions between mother and father, but the Word of God clearly lays this out. And I'm going to charge you as mothers that you should take advantage of that unique season in your life. Now, some of you are beyond motherhood and you're into grandmotherhood. Well, maybe you've got a second season that you can go on with, right? You've got both Lois and Eunice here, right? So some of you may find yourself in a situation where you're going to have to be Lois and Eunice is not really doing it, right? That's entirely possible. It doesn't change the fact that as a mother or grandmother, you have a unique relationship to that child, particularly when they're young, and you can make an enormous impression on them as you teach them in the Word of God. I encourage you to do so. Thank you for listening to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church. This has been Elder Dan Sammons, preaching in one of our regular meetings. Come and join us as we worship God in the simplicity of Christ every Sunday morning at 416 North Hall Street in Donaldson, Arkansas. At Harmony, we don't have many things you'll find in the popular churches of our day, but we do have a successful Savior. We invite you to come and see.